thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And hold on to your hats, listeners. OMG. Do we have somebody that is going to absolutely rock you to the core on today's show? We have the author of a book called Blood on the Rosary, the most incredible woman, Margaret Harrod. Now, if you guys haven't read that book, you're going to have to jump on and grab a copy, either get, a, get it online or get it at your local bookstore. Cindy put Kim and I onto this incredible true story um, based an Australian true story that is, um, I'm not going to give it away, but I'm telling you, it is a story that is going to take your breath away in so many different ways. And what an extraordinary opportunity we have mm. to have the incredible Margaret Harrod, author of Blood on the Rosary, here on the show with us to share her story. Margaret, thank you so much for being a part of today's show and everything that you're about to share with us. I take my hat off to you. I think you're incredible. And our listeners are in for such a treat to listen in on this conversation as we sit around like girlfriends chatting about your book and your story. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Can we start um, with what made you decide to write the book Blood on the Rosary? Because the actual occurrences of what actually happened really occurred um, over the last couple of decades. So what, what, was, what was the impetus that uh, made you write this book? I never set about to with the thought of actually writing a book. Um, I was actually approached and asked whether I would write my story and that came about through Sue Smithhurst, who is the co-author of the book. Um, she heard me speaking out trying to break the silences around sexual abuse and I was being interviewed um, a number of years ago now on Melbourne Radio and she heard me being interviewed and she sought me out and encouraged me to actually start to put into print my story and I kept on saying oh it's just my story you know it was no big deal to me um, and she kept on saying no your story can make a difference. So over the years of interaction with Sue, um, yeah, it, I, I suppose I basically finally came to the point where I thought, you know what, maybe telling my story will give some hope and encouragement to others. So I agreed to actually write, do the writing process with her. I've got to tell you, it was like a book. I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in two days. I was enthralled by, you know, how the, the story unfolded. And, uh, you know, I watched the uh, movie Spotlight, 
which was a very similar theme to what happens in your book with regards to um, abuse in the Catholic Church. And I remember at the end of the, the movie, it showed all the towns and countries that were affected by what was happening um, with regards to abuse in the Catholic Church. And um, I looked for my town because yes. I was a Catholic, a big Catholic town, and I looked for my town and I didn't see it, but I rang my brother immediately and said, Marcus, did anything ever happen to you, you know, with the brothers or, you know, the priest? Because that's who was around us. Yes. Um, and because I was from, you know, Bendigo, nothing did happen as far as I know there. But Ballarat, which wasn't far away, you know, there were things happening. So what I'd, I'd like our listeners to go through, and, and I would recommend this book to everyone. Like some people have said to me, why are you listening to that book, Cindy? Um, I don't want to hear that. And they don't want to hear it, Margaret. Mm. They don't mm. want to hear the truth. Yeah, exactly. But let's start with what your life was like growing up. So I have a twin brother. We are the eldest of four children. Um, I used to think growing up that I had a pretty idyllic um, childhood. Um, so we used to just play innocently, myself and my brothers, particularly my twin brother. I was very close to him. Um, and because we were the eldest, we spent a lot of time together. Um, my parents, particularly my father, was very involved in the local church. So my early memories are of going to church and he used to play the organ and there I would be sitting like under near his feet as a, as a young young child uh, while he was playing. And, you know, we, we did camping holidays and, yeah, it, it was, I thought it was very idyllic. But then as time went on and I got older, I started to have all these sort of thoughts. Why is it that I can't remember things? Um, because my other brothers would recall fun things we had done, um, different memories that they had, and I just couldn't remember. And they'd say, oh, you know, when, you know, such and such and we did this and, and you know, mum and dad took us here or, and, not so, uh, and I'd pretend that I'd remember, but I was very frustrated that I couldn't remember. So as I grew up, you know, I just went to school, came home, I had friends at school, but I wasn't allowed to have friends outside school. Um, and I, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought my childhood was quite normal until I got much older. And then I started to question, you know, well, what is going on? Why is it that I can't have friends? And um, and I started to realise much, much later that I'd actually blocked out a lot of my childhood. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what else to say about my childhood and growing up at the moment. Well, so what I... When I realised that you didn't really understand what was happening to you as a child was when I think that you had um, become a nun or was beginning um, to do um, 
I guess, the education to become a nun, and mm. and somebody came in with the word incest. Yes, okay. Yeah. Can can we talk about that moment for you? Yeah, yep. Um, so what happened was I, I joined the convent thinking that, you know, that was what God wanted me to do, and here I was this, oh, you know, 2021, when I went into the convent and I was all full of, you know, excitement and enthusiasm and I was teaching. Um, so I was studying and teaching as well. And to me, it was just the perfect, perfect life. So I'd done all my initial training as a nun and then in Melbourne and then I was actually um, moved back to Sydney, um, which is where my parents lived also. And I was teaching at the school there in Sydney and I was on playground duty one morning and one of the teachers from the school who I really admired um, for her enthusiasm for living and, you know, zest for life, um, she came bounding up one morning on her way into to class and she'd said to me, oh, did you see the show last night on television about incest? And, of course, we hadn't because we didn't watch television. But And, and she went on to, to say, you know, how horrified she was about the whole concept of incest and she couldn't believe that particularly, you know, a father could actually um, do that to their, to their child, particularly a daughter. Um, and, and me in my innocence, and I suppose being totally naive, I'd never even consciously heard of that word. Um, and I'm thinking, <laughs> like it sounded like it was terrible, but I'm sort of thinking, what is it that she's actually on about? So I actually remember looking up in the dictionary the word incest to find out exactly what she was on about. And it was like you know, a train wreck, like a sledgehammer hitting me. And that was the first time that I consciously realised that what my father was doing to me was very wrong. Um, I don't doubt that before I had the conscious understanding of that, that subconsciously I knew very well that what my father was doing to me had to be wrong uh, because it felt so wrong. Um, and none of my, you know, friends at school were talking about their fathers doing things to them and taking them away for weekends and and gifting them all the time. So I knew it was wrong, but it was, I suppose, because I held that teacher up in such high esteem that her horror um, of viewing that show, um, I suppose, really connected with me and, and as I said, it was like being hit um, and I just had this, like, huge shock that, oh, my God, you know, what I've been living through at that stage for, you know, over, oh, over 20 years um, was horrendous. Yeah. And so what was the... Well, explain to us the realisation process for you in when you realised that that was actually so wrong. What went through your mind in terms of 
what that meant for you and the relationships and 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 what that was going to look like for you moving forward mm. um, I, I think I walked around for I don't know days weeks probably months <laughs> um, living in shock mm. and not knowing what I was going to do um, you know, I've just been presented with this huge reality of what my life had been and what was I going to do with this? I, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I mean, I joined the convent and it was a huge sanctuary for me. Um, I loved my life in the convent, but I wasn't happy either. So it, it was a real discrepancy there for me because on one hand I still say that, you know, it was a wonderful life and I just loved the teaching, I loved the prayer life, I loved, you know, the community aspect of living um, with with a whole group of other, other women. Um, but on the other hand, I was never truly happy. So there was always this big question mark, if, if this is something that I'm really enjoying and believe that God's called me to do, why is it that I'm not happy? Mm. And the nuns had actually said to me, like I remember um, <laughs> the nun that was in charge of my training in Melbourne at one stage saying to me, you're the saddest person I've ever met. And <sighs> like I still carry that. Um, I'd, mm. I'd, like I didn't know what to say to that. For um, sure. And it was like it was the sheer, I think that they were just really frustrated um, because as far as they could see, I was, you know, a wonderful teacher. I was wonderful within the community. So in their eyes, I suppose I was, you know, pretty perfect for them in all the extras that I used to do in the convent. And um, so... I suppose they're going through the same discrepancy as I am. I'm thinking, I love this way of life and I just, you know, gave myself right into it, yet I wasn't happy. And they're sort of seeing it the same is, like, she's she's doing all this stuff, but she she's sad, you know, like, what's going on? And um, the nun in charge, actually, they sent me off to South Australia um, for some... Oh, I was there for, for about eight weeks, um, like practical, um, before I actually be, officially became a nun. And I was sent there, so I was going to teach and live in the community there, so I was an experience there, and basically was sent off with the instruction, if you don't come back happy, then you're going to have to leave. Um, so, you know, there I am carted off or sent off to Adelaide with that instruction. I thought, oh, you know, like really <laughs> um there was did, no did, way did, i could leave at that stage because did they uh, know what you'd been through no they didn't and that's like so right. that's the hard thing because still at that stage that was before i'd actually been able to utter the words i've been sexually abused by my father yeah right so that's why i have a lot of compassion for them because mm. they're sort of pulling their hair out with trying to think, what can we do for her? You know, she's sad. She's not happy. Look, if she doesn't come back happy, 
we have to say to her, you know, you, you need to leave. Um, so that was their frustration, I think. Even when I did finally make the decision that I had to leave, they were heartbroken and they begged me to stay. And um, But at that stage, I still wasn't able to explain to them the real reason why I was going. Mm. So that, that was... That was hard. In in hindsight, like I really wish that I had been in a position where I felt I could tell them and talk to them about it. What year was this? What year is this, Margaret? Um, so, well, what year? Um, I was, when I finally left the convent, I was 28. Um, so what are we talking about? Was it the 1960s, oh, um, 60s, 70s, 70s? It would have been the 70s. Yeah, it was the 1970s that this yeah. was happening. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah, because I remember um, thinking where I was. I was trying to remember that date now because I, was, I remember thinking where I was. And, I, and as well as this happening in your life, you're watching something else unfold with your twin brother. Mm. And when you mentioned the school that... Um, this was all happening at with your twin brother who had become a priest. Yes. I would go past that school and wish I was at that school um, in Sunbury. It was, I think it was a boys' school, but I used to go, oh, that's such a nice school when we go past it on our way into Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> it just, yeah, it was quite funny. So let's talk about that unfolding for you, that you started to see things that your brother was doing. Yeah. But you didn't know how to speak up, exactly yeah. like what your father was doing and you didn't know how to speak up. Yeah. So that actually started when I was still in in Melbourne um, studying to be a nun um, and I was, and for the first few years after I'd become a nun, I was still teaching. So I taught in Melbourne um, for, what, three, three, four years um, once I was had finished my study and become a nun. So during those years down there, which was, you know, probably six six to seven years, um, Michael was also living in Melbourne and studying for the priesthood. And so often of a weekend, um, Michael had a car, um, well, loan of a car, and he would sometimes come and pick me up and... So I was allowed to like go out for the afternoon with him. And sometimes that would involve visiting a family that he knew. And on this particular occasion, I went to a family's home with him. Um, Michael had become extremely friendly with this family and visited them regularly. And we were there and we were having afternoon tea. So... Um, two, there were four children, but there was two younger children and the, the mum and dad were out of the room. I was sitting on the lounge. It was my first time of visiting. Michael was sitting in a chair opposite me and he had the youngest girl sitting on his knee, um, or sitting on his lap rather. And, you know, it was just like little conversations going on and he put his hands like on her groin and started like rubbing her groin. Um, and I'm just sitting opposite and, you know, I, like I can still see it now and and I'm thinking I don't believe what I'm seeing. 
Um, and it was like I went into, again, a type of, of, well, I think a denial, like a shock, but a denial. Um, he doesn't, and it just sort of brought up to me, hang on a minute, my father has done some similar things like that um, to me and it doesn't feel right and I know it's not right. What's Michael doing? Um, so I couldn't, I think I couldn't bring myself to accept that my twin brother who I loved to bits and we'd been so close, I could not get my head around the reality that maybe he was doing things similar to what my father had been doing. Um, so I shut it down. Um, I basically made an excuse that I had to get back to the convent, so we left and um, we never talked about it. Um, I couldn't say anything and Michael certainly didn't say anything. Um, and I, I think I just, well, I know I just buried that down. I couldn't bring myself to think about it. Mm. Um, and at this stage, I still hadn't talked to anybody about what my father had done or even like considered consciously that what my father had done was wrong. Um, I so I carried a lot of, like, uh, many years later, um, that that thought and, and the vision of Michael with that little girl came back to haunt me and I felt so guilty that I hadn't stepped in and stopped him um, and protected that little girl. Because um, that so little girl um, had a really hard life, didn't she? That little girl had a tragic life and her whole family imploded. Um because it turned out that Michael not only abused her over a period of time, but he'd also abused her brother. Um, and when the children tried to tell the mother and father, they wouldn't believe because Michael had been, you know, the priest and in the family and, and all of this, um, the whole family basically imploded. Um, and that poor little girl uh, ended up, she, I can't help but just describe it as withered and, and died. Um, mm. There was nothing of her at the end. Um, I actually had the privilege of a couple of phone calls with her not long before she passed away. Um, and I was able to tell her how sorry I was that I wasn't able to protect her. but. She was just so beautiful and and expressed that she was grateful that I was speaking out and, and that Michael was going to be brought to some justice. Um, but it, it was it's heartbreaking. Um, Margaret, if I can just say to you, you know, sexual abuse is a is a pretty horrific thing full stop. When you're a young girl it's very difficult to even comprehend, like you've said, that someone could hurt you or even what is actually wrong because yeah. there's no concept or understanding of what is right yes. at such a young age. Yeah. Can you tell me 
I can't imagine for you looking at that little girl and I hope that you have come to a place of peace in knowing that through your confusion was the the main reason why you probably felt so paralyzed yeah. in your own fear. Can you tell me where was the moment or how did you feel um, when the fear started to become, I guess, if the word you can, you can tell me the word, but you started to get a little bit more strength mm. in order to tell or speak up. How did that start to transpire for you? I think a lot of it came about, I mean, it was a gradual process, but when I had my own two children, um, I started to think more about a mother's role in protecting her children and how precious and innocent children are. Um, so for me to to think about the fact that my innocence had been taken away from me, um, my, my father was abusing me from when I was a toddler. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have the, the right to grow up in innocence and thinking about that little girl that I observed on Michael's lap, um, she had her innocence taken away from her too. Um, and I have to say that I kept thinking about her and she's really the, the reason why I ultimately agreed to writing the book because I thought that the best way I could honour her was by speaking and giving a voice to people like her that didn't have the ability or to actually speak or they didn't find the people that actually listened to them. Um, so, yeah, writing the book was definitely my way of honouring her and, unfortunately, the victims who have succumbed to, um, you know, basically had their lives shattered and taken away from them. Um, yeah. Okay, you know what I love? Um about this whole, and I don't know if it's a book you can love, but it's an awakening book. But that what happened to you and what happened to that little girl, and there's more to your story than what we're telling, yeah. um, and people will read that in the book, but what happened to you versus what happened to that little girl, and you were able to bring your life around. You were able to find a beautiful man that loved you and you love him. You were able to have children despite everything that happened to you. And I think that that should give people who have had things happen to them in their lives that it just because that happens doesn't mean you can't have find happiness. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, and that's one of the big messages that I'd, I'd like to get across is that you can, you can have, we, we all have our stories. Um, I have mine, everybody has their stories. Um, and we can, our stories can cripple us or we can pick ourselves up 
with assistance, with love and support. And we are able, with a lot of hard work at times, be able to move through and come out the other side and live meaningful um, and loving lives. Now, that's not saying it's, it's, it's easy. It, it, it's not easy. But I suppose I was provided with a choice. It's a bit like when I was in the convent, you know. If you don't come back happy, you're going to leave. Well, I didn't want to leave, so I came back putting on a bigger mask than I'd put on before mm. because I was determined I've got to be happy because I really want to be a nun. Um, and then at different phases of my life, it's the same. I have to, you know, I wanted to continue teaching. I mean, some days the last thing I felt like doing was getting out of bed and getting going. But, you know, teaching primary school, so teaching innocent, beautiful little children gave me a real purpose in life too. So it gave me a real focus, a reason to get out of bed every morning, a reason to get dressed, a reason to drive to work, put on the mask and just be absorbed in the innocence um, of children. Um, yeah, to me, in a way, there wasn't a choice. The only choice I had was either I curl up and die or I continue to fight hard to actually live my life. Um, now, I don't want that to seem that, you know, well, it was just so easy, just make that decision and get on with it. You know, it's been very, very hard and I've worked very hard and I, I still work hard at, at, you know, keeping going. Um, but I suppose the biggest, definitely the biggest impact for me being able to have the strength and courage to keep going was when I met Rod, my husband. Um, in essence, we still talk about that today. I mean, we've been married 32 years now. <laughs> um, and we still say, you know, how did that happen? Like, mm -hmm. given my history, how did you know, <laughs> we actually fall in love and, and get married and have two children. and um, But we both really, really firmly believe it was meant to be. Um, like, it, it's a miracle, really. Mm. Um, but we did meet um, in the most unlikely circumstances, um, and that's in the book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but... There was just something very special about him and he says the same about me and we did get married and we've worked hard at our relationship. Um, it hasn't always been easy by any means, um, but we have a very good understanding of each other. He loves me to bits. I love him. He has been my rock. Um, he's never given up on me despite, you know, times where I've made it very difficult for him, um, but his love and support has always remained. So I'm very fortunate and my two children are such a blessing to me and I think the big thing with having my son and my daughter is it really brought home to me that children are born perfect and innocent and lovable. And although I had my innocence taken away, they are 
to me a perfect example of how beautiful children are and how much they deserve to be loved and cherished and and you know given opportunities in their life you know live with freedom and um and i suppose that's what being a teacher of young children and having my own two children really helped me a lot um to keep going and and to realize well life is precious um and i mean there was one fairly crucial situation when my children were uh, primary school, like primary school where I got to the point where I really felt that Rod and Jason and Nicola would be better off without me around. Um, and I was determined that I was going to basically leave this world um, so that they could live in peace. Um, now, circumstances came together that that didn't happen. And I think that was a real turning point for me as well because I realised very, very deeply that Rod and my two children really wanted me in their lives despite at times it being like difficult for them. Um, but they still wanted me around, so. That's the thing, isn't it? I think, you know, when you're at that point, you think that it's it's so hard for them to have to live with you and all that you go through. But, mm -hmm. you know, no one will ever have experienced the hardship that you have in, in, in that comparison, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested how you feel now that you've written the book and, you know, I'm sure that we could talk to you all day and all night your story is astounding um, and we haven't even scraped the surface of it how do you feel now that you have actually written that book and you're having conversations like this where you're reflecting back on it almost from a distance has that contributed to the healing for you i mean uh yeah, it definitely has. Um, I think even when I was going through the writing process, because a, a, a lot of the book um, is, is actually word for word of my journals over, over the years too. Um, so a lot of it was Sue would, would, you know, there'd be hours of conversation with Sue and so she would put into print, like put put a, um, yeah, into print, my spoken word. Um, but she combined that with a lot of my word for word, my journal writing. So when I'm when I was reading through the book, I was actually, <laughs> I can laugh about it now. Um, I was actually living in denial that writing this book. Um, and going over my whole life and, you know, rereading my life and going through all the ins and outs and the ups and downs, I kept on saying, oh, it won't have an impact on me. And the reason I was saying that was because I felt in my mind if I 
recognise that this is having an impact on my life. It means that it was wrong. I shouldn't have put myself through writing the book. Um, because when I spoke to to Rod and my two children, because it was very important for me that I had their support in doing this, um, I needed them to be okay with it. And, of course, they were supportive. However, they were very wary of what impact it would have on me. So I kept on saying, oh, no, it's fine, you know, it's not going to affect me any. Um, so I, I, I suppose I was really distancing myself from the process. So I was going through the motions. But then it came to the point where I realised, you know what, this is having an impact. <laughs> um, and when I started, when I realised that and realised, well, of course it's going to have an impact, um, it was then that I was able to really get into, like, expressing even more and putting more of the jigsaw puzzles together and more and more came out. So things that I hadn't even, and I mean, I've done lots of therapy and, and it's it's been, you know, helped me so much. But it's always this puzzle of you think, oh, there can't be anything left in my, you know, locked away in my brain that I haven't, you know, thought about or written about or talked about. But once I sort of freed myself up to actually passionately really get into the writing of the book and just talking really freely about my, my story, what happened was other things were being unearthed. So it certainly was a very healing process for me as well. Hard because it was it ended up getting quite confronting at times for me, um, but it was very healing at the same time. And I have to say that as we got further and further into the book and I read more and more um, of the draft, it was it was like one day... I just had this realisation and I could say, I actually could say to myself, you know what, I am proud of myself for what I'm doing. Um, and that was the first time I'd actually been able to say, you know, genuinely to myself that I was proud of myself. Um, oh, so that, that was a huge thing for me. Um, mm. And, and when, when I read the final draft, I literally sat down with the whole draft and read it from, you know, basically cover to cover um, over, you know, a day and a half. And when I got to the end, I thought, yeah, that is my story and I'm proud that I've actually put it to print because I, I, I did believe then that I thought, wow, I really think this can make a difference. Um, and so and I have, you, that. have you had a lot of feedback and people reaching out to you since you've put the book out? I have. Um, I've I've had lots of emails, um, lots of people sending like beautiful messages of support and love, and, and which has been wonderful. Um, I've had an awful lot of people coming forward with their own stories, mm. and um, quite a lot of those people adding in that they have never talked to anybody before, but now, having read my story, they 
feel that they can talk about it. And, you know, hallelujah, that's what I wanted, you know, to give people a voice. Um, well, I know um, when I was reading it, Margaret, I wanted to become unbaptised. I was so furious with mm. the Catholic Church mm. as to how they treated you when you finally spoke up about Michael and what he was doing and how you wanted, um, you know, justice. Yes. I, I, do, I really did. I, I just I would ask people, can I become unbaptised? Can I have nothing to do with the Catholic Church again? Yeah. Because they treated you horribly I, I was yes. just and that's not that long ago it's not like no, this is not. the 70s anymore no I mean that's only a couple of years ago mm. um and of course I'm only one example obviously of, of of you know what what they've done and there are so many similar stories out there um and it's terrible um Margaret can I ask you I, I've seen some of the statistics. I don't know how accurate this is. Um, I also have survived sexual abuse from a young age, and I but nothing within my church, but you know, like a church or with something that you truly trust within the family. They say that one in ten children or young people will be abused before the age of eighteen, mm. and that thirty-four percent of those. Um, sexual abuse attacks uh, with family members. Yeah. Can I ask you why you think this happens? Do you have any thoughts now, having been the victim mm. and the survivor, why these people do such hideous acts? Have you thought about it from the other side in any way, shape or form? And if you have, what are your thoughts around that? And what would you say to people listening to this that, have also been at the hands of sexual abuse. Mm. Have you had any sense of forgiveness or any other thoughts around it for the person who actually perpetrates such an act? Uh, well, that's really hard. I, I certainly have thought about why it happens, how it happens. Um, I, I, I don't... I haven't come up with an answer. I don't believe there is an answer. Um, the reason I say that is because I still cannot get my head around how a father, a mother, an uncle, some family member, grandparent, um, let alone priest, I can't get my head around how they can do what they do. I mean, to me, there's no, I, there is no explainable reason, answer for that question. Um, it's horrendous in anybody's terms. So how, and I just think of myself as a, as a mother, I think of myself as a teacher, so I've got my two children that obviously as a mother I would literally kill to protect my two children. Um, as a teacher, I've intervened to protect young children. So I can't get a... Like, if you really love your children, I cannot... 
I cannot see how you could hurt them in such a way. It's so damaging. Um, I mean, it has lifelong ramifications. And maybe that's the issue. Like my father, till the day he died, when I confronted him, um, he just said to me, you know, don't be ridiculous. I haven't done anything wrong. Um, I love you. It's an expression of my love. Now, I mean, I don't know whether people get caught up in convincing themselves that, no, I'm just being affectionate. I love my, you know, child or whatever. Um, Do you know if your father was abused at all when he was younger or if he grew um, up in a similar sort of environment? So much so that he thought that that was what was right or real or how love was shown? I don't know. I don't, don't think so. I, I, I do know that um, my father grew up in his father suffered mental illness um, and his father actually um, suicided um, and my father did suffer mental illness, um, you know, a lot of depression. Um, but I'm unaware that there was any form of, of sexual abuse there. But, you know, they wouldn't have talked about it anyway, so... No, it doesn't sound like they would have. No. What no. about the fact that your brother um, also went on to do the, this, not, not that he had any children, but he still did it to people who trusted him, other yes. children that trusted him. What, what, did you ever wonder what was the correlation between the father doing it to you and yes. then him doing it? Had he seen? Had he been abused? What happened there? Oh, like I, I get that all asked all the time, like did my father abuse Michael? Now, when I actually um, told my brothers that my father had, had abused me, they all claimed that Dad hadn't done anything to them. Um, I, look, again, like I have no evidence that um, my dad did anything to my brothers. I mean, I... There was certainly, I believe, an element of psychological abuse in the household um, because my, my father certainly, you know, controlled the household and what happened and, and all of that. But I don't believe that there was any sexual abuse to any of my brothers. Um, so why Michael went on to do what he did is a very big question. Have you never got the chance to ask him? Uh, no, because when Michael actually had to leave the... the Michael was teaching in the school in South Australia um, and the Age newspaper in Melbourne featured a story with photo of him and um, one of his victims had come forward and so the age had picked up the newspaper, well, picked up the story and ran this huge article. They'd been following Michael, but they'd been following the Salesians in general um, at Rupertswood particularly, at Sunbury. Um, so this article talked about that the victim had come forward and, and accused Michael of sexually abusing him. So Michael, um, the Salesian priest, who Michael was part of that order, um, made Michael overnight disappear from, from Port Pirie um, and Michael ended up on our doorstep, um, try, you know, finding somewhere to, to go and hide. 
Um, so that was extremely difficult too because I, that, I suppose that was the first time, it, it was definitely the first time where I started that, the, the, the vision of that girl sitting on Michael's lap came back to me because when Michael fronted up on my doorstep and I knew the reason why he was there was because he'd been accused of sexual abuse, I knew instinctively that his victim was telling the truth. Mm. Um, I had no doubt that Michael had offended. What I didn't know at the time was the extent of the offending. Um, so Michael lived with us for that um, about six months. Um, and during that time, I tried to get on a couple of occasions for him, just tell me the truth. Um, but he clammed up, he hardly spoke at all, and he just would not engage in conversation with me. So when Michael actually left here, um, th that's when I actually broke down. Um, mm. And that's where the because the two priests, I'd been abused by two priests. Um, I had all these visions and feeling guilty that I'd not protected the little girl. All that came flooding up and, yeah, I, I fell apart big time. Mm. Um, I remember that time in the book and um, it was, um, like I said, it was, it was heart-wrenching. Mm. Where, where I'd um, love to go now and, and to be on a more positive note is what you're doing now. What you've turned everything around and like I get goosebumps thinking about you. I get goosebumps about the book and, and I guess before I ask you to tell us what you're doing now and how people can find you is um, whether you want to read it or not and whether you want to know this stuff or not, you need to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody needs to read this, yeah. and, and like, like I swear, people would say, "Why are you reading it? Why do you mm. want to know that?" Even my husband would be going, "I don't want to hear it." Yeah. So, yeah. well, I, I think all the while that people are saying, "No, you know, it doesn't interest me. I don't need to know that. I don't mm. want to know that." We're 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 still keeping the silence. Yep. So, you know, the what we need to do is to speak and share that awareness that. This is a scourge in our community. We have to speak out about it. So we we need to know. And I'm actually heartened by, you know, people that um, have, have bought the book and have read it and have spoken to me and said, and I gave it to my, my son to read mm -hmm. and I gave it to my husband to read. And I think, how fantastic is that? Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's the only way we're going to continue to make a shift in in society. Um, so people, people, it, it's horrible. And I think that's why a lot of people shy away. I mean, I've had people say, like, you know, you were mentioning, um, you were angry. People have said they cried, they were angry. All those emotions coming up. But I think it's important that they actually feel those emotions and realise that there are a lot of victims out there that are still unfortunately in victim mode. Um, they're, they're shut down, they're not able to speak themselves at the moment and a lot of that's because of the terrible shame um, that's involved. Okay. And then there's the others who have come out of victim mode and are in survival mode. But 
You know, they need to know that people are horrified by this. You know, and I mean, I suppose that's a big thing with the mess, a lot of the emails that I'm receiving is it's people that are saying, thank you, thank you. I thought I was the only one. I thought that, you know, I'd asked for it, all these things. So, you know, the least we can do is, you know, talk about it and, and, and spread the word that, you know, the, it's wrong, it's horrendous, there is help out there um, and, you know, you deserve to have, have a happy life. Yes. Yeah, so. so tell us what you're doing now and how people can find you. Like I think I read that you were life coaching and helping, um, you know, people see the brighter side of life. Am, am I right there? Yeah, look, I, I've done various things. <laughs> um, I did, I was a life, well, I am a life coach. However, what I do now is more... I call incidental conversation. Mm. So in my getting around, I'm actually working presently at Fernwood Women's Gym in my local area. Yeah. Um, So when I left teaching, I was already a member of the gym and then I started working there. So I've done various roles there. And so... At the moment, what I largely do is I run some workshops for them. Um, I did a workshop yesterday, actually, a meditation workshop, and we had 65 ladies there, which was awesome, and led them through various strategies for how to live mindfully and, and, and to meditate in their everyday. Um, so that was um, very special. Um, and I do a lot of listening and having lots of cups of coffee with people (laughs) so I have an awful lot of ladies and particularly now that the books come out and the the gym had me um, talk um, at a morning tea for International Women's Day so again a lot of ladies have approached me after that and and like just wanting to to chat to me about my life but more importantly, opening up about their own lives. So I just find that that's where my avenue largely is now. I find it a blessing to be involved in the community down there and to, you know, we've got a couple of thousand members, so there's a real need and an avenue for me to continue to make a difference there. So basically, that's what I'm doing. Um, so my life coaching business as such has been put aside um, because I am doing a lot of, well, talking to you. I've been approached to talk at, at various events. Um, but as I said, mostly it is me just talking to ladies that yeah, approach me or that I just happen to be talking to and they start opening up. It's also um, with these emails and things I'm getting, I'm, you know, obviously responding to those and there's been a few people where I'm like there's backwards and forwards so there's more communication going on with them. Um, So at the moment that's what I'm doing. Sounds like you're doing an amazing service to the community. 
yeah, like, like I just, I feel that's where I can make a difference at the moment. Um, yeah. Margaret, can I ask you, just without going back into the, you know, the sordid feelings around this, which I really respect and acknowledge you for being able to share with us, and we can truly hear it in your voice, that this has not always been easy, and, and I just, we all do take our hats off to you. I would just love to ask your, um, what would be, how would you want, if you had the opportunity to be that little girl again, and and there was someone looking at you, what would be the signs, the telltale signs, or what is, is there anything that would help those of us in the community looking in on our beautiful children? Um, most of us as parents would want nothing more than to protect our children, but even mm. our children can be frightened into speaking. Yeah. Are there telltale signs in your knowledge and in your learnings now that are very obvious that we could now pinpoint if we saw someone suffering at the hands of another cruel beast. What would that look like? Do you know? Um, that's very difficult because, like, young children, particularly if they're being abused by um, a family member, they, they trust and will, you know, you believe that this person really does love you. So often there are no telltale signs um, because if, if your daddy's doing things to you and says that this is our playtime and, you know, I love you and, you know, this is all our special time, then you, you feel, oh, daddy really loves me and, and I'm having special time with daddy. Um, so it's often very tricky to pick up. However, in saying that... Um, but you know deep down... Yeah, I think even as a child, it's it's there's something wrong. You said that at the beginning, and I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't yeah, know what it was. Yeah, I, I, I think for me, um, if your child is very quiet, starts to withdraw, um, listen to your children, talk quite openly about things um, like age appropriate. I'm not talking about you know, having deep and meaningful, but. You said it when you said the word incest you mm. hadn't even heard of. And I, uh, I'm feeling like listening to you that one of the greatest gifts and services we can offer our children as a teachers, parents, aunties, uncles, anybody is perhaps teaching children at all the age appropriate yeah. times of what is touch, safe touch, good yeah, touch. Totally. And yeah. having the ability to talk to somebody that they trust yeah what would the, be the good thing is that that does happen these days like when i was teaching we we were already teaching that in schools um you know from from little kinder children right through um and i know we certainly um as parents at home um had those conversations with with our two children when i was a child and growing up of course you didn't have those conversations um so you're definitely right. The best thing you can do is is have those age-appropriate conversations. So our children growing up um, learn from, you know, very, very young age that they are special. They are to be respected. They need to respect their own body. We respect each other's bodies. Um, so, yeah, and, and so important if your child comes to you clearly 
um, upset or saying something, you need to believe them. You know, and 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 don't be afraid to get them some professional help. So, if even if you've got, I really think listen to your gut. Like, I think particularly as women, our intuition is really strong, and we need to listen to that too. So, particularly as mothers, or not even as mothers, as grandmothers, as aunts, as friends, as sisters, as whatever. Um, listen to your gut feeling and if it doesn't feel right then at least go and talk to somebody and get some professional help on how you you need to handle this Um, if your child starts you know some sort of erratic behavior um, then investigate Um, but yeah it's it's definitely talking to your children and at all ages, you know, talking to our our teenage children as well. Um, so it's 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 a huge. I still believe it's a huge problem, even though it shouldn't be. Um, I agree, and I and I absolutely would love to say to you that maybe through podcasts like this, your book, mm-hmm. the actual conversation can open up the possibility, even. And I'd love to ask your advice to the women and men that are listening to this that maybe have never talked about what's happened to them and maybe they've held a secret for so long that what would be your advice to those beautiful souls listening to this for the first time? Maybe there's an inkling of finding their own voice. Is there a place to go to first that you think or what should they do? Well, I definitely, they definitely need professional help. Um, you know, whatever that looks like. But this is not something that, you know, if you've buried something like this um, for for often for decades, like I did too, um, you can't handle this yourself. It, it, it's no use sort of saying, oh, yeah, I'm all right. And um, that just keeps us in denial. So these people definitely need some form of support by a professional. So whether that be, and I suppose that's a difficulty for, for a lot of people is actually taking that first step, which is obviously the hardest step, is first of all acknowledging that, well, I have been a victim of, of trauma, whatever that looks like, um, and I, I need to begin to voice that and get it out because unless we talk about it and get it out of our body, I, I remember my first psychologist saying to me, um, the greatest gift I can give you is the gift of speech. And he was so right. Um, You know, there were many hours sitting with him, with me hardly saying anything. But gradually over time, he did give me the gift of speech. And I'd like to think that through my book and interviews like this with you is that I am, I've been given a gift to actually, an opportunity to actually speak more and more um, and I will take every opportunity I can to speak. So whether that be through a podcast like this or whether it be over a cup of coffee with an individual or whether it be through an email or a phone call to somebody, I will continue to speak. I will continue to try and encourage people to have their find their own voice and speak, but I implore them 
please, there are people out there that can support you and help you. Now, where you go for that, um, look, if you don't know anywhere else, go to your doctor and say, look, can you give me, you know, a recommend or a referral to um, a counsellor, a psychologist, um, a mental health worker? Um, you've just got to start. Um, I suppose that's the hard thing, but... I think the advice that you've that you're sharing there, um, Margaret, is invaluable, and I think it's very difficult. Um, the kind of situation that you've been put in, and for every other family that could possibly be experiencing anything like that, I think it's a very difficult situation. And I think that the problem doesn't just occur in one family member's life; it's a it's a problem for the whole family, obviously. And you know, we yeah. can see that with your example and with, with your story. Yeah. You've shared so much of yourself with us. It has been such a treat and such an honour to um, participate in this, this show with you today. And like we said earlier, we haven't even scraped the surface and you're doing amazing things. You're making a massive difference in the lives of so many people and I can't help but sometimes think that, you know, when we go through such dark degrees of contrast mm. that we have our experiences on behalf of mankind, so much so that we can make the world a better place if that's the lesson that we take from those experiences and then those experiences make us into something magnificent rather than breaking us, mm. which is also another possibility. But you've certainly inspired my, me beyond measure and um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are sitting there in absolute awe of you not only for writing the book but for having the courage to have conversations like this where you're continuing to speak about it mm. and you know that it's just it's been so heartwarming so thank you for being a part of today's show and and sharing yourself so openly we all appreciate it Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure and I'm very humbled that you wanted to, to <laughs> chat to me. So our listeners, if you guys are interested and we strongly recommend that you do, um, get yourself a copy of the book Blood on the Rosary and it's written by our beautiful Margaret Harrod and um, co-authored by Sue Smithhurst. Now, they can grab that book. Is there a website or is there um, anywhere in particular you'd like our listeners to head to? Well, if you Google Margaret Harrod, you'll come up with a whole, you know, stack of things. Yes. Um, another um, resource I'd encourage them to perhaps go to while they're waiting to get the book is... Obviously, they're listening to your podcast, but I was interviewed on ABC Conversations. Oh, with Richard. Amazing. Um, no, it was actually with Hamish McDonald. Oh. Um, who, and he was amazing. So oh. I'd encourage your, your listeners to have a listen to that. And I was and also interviewed on um, ABC One Plus One with Eleanor Hall. So that's another... Um, area that they might like to listen to or view as well. Um, and I'm looking at, I've just Googled you and I'm looking at those links there. So we'll make sure that they get included in the show notes. Thank you. And I mean, if people, I don't know whether there's an avenue through your podcast for people to contact me. They can certainly, there's an email address in the back of the book, um, which is Sue Smethurst, and she forwards emails to me. Um, 
and so if there's anybody that wishes to make contact i i certainly would value that and i will certainly respond how beautiful uh, so. but thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak further and i just encourage you all in your wonderful work of spreading awareness also um and to your viewers just just talk about it talk about the subject support loved ones support any survivors you know um let's just talk yeah it'll make a difference and now that's, I suppose that's exactly what what you're all about isn't it up for a chat <laughs> like to chat yeah, very <laughs> well you're amazing margaret we've loved every second of it so thank you once again and more power to you, sister. Keep mm. going and keep doing your beautiful work. You're amazing. Thank you so much. I certainly will. Thank you. And now for all, of our, all Sorry. of our listeners. <laughs> just to say I love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. For all of our listeners, head on over to our Facebook page at allthesws.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. Please post your comments and your questions there and then we will also certainly make sure that we get those across to Margaret as well on your behalf. You can also head on over to all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. Now you just make sure, most importantly, you tune in here next week, right here on Up for a Chat, because can't you see that we are creating a ripple effect that is making a massive difference in this world? And I tell you, it is such a treat to share this ride with you, our listeners. We're going to see you next week. Bye, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.